Welcome to the Master of None podcast, adventures in a hands-on life. Build, grow, cook, train, explore. She's laughing at me for some reason. Why are you laughing at me? Because you're making noises with your mouth. Oh. I was preparing to start speaking. You have to get everything out before, before you start speaking. Anyway, let's talk about some project updates on stuff that we have going on right now. So we have... We're not going to talk about Parmesan every single episode for the next year while we're waiting for it, but... We did start a new batch of Parmesan so that we can kind of stagger our batches of Parmesan as they age. So we actually started a new batch yesterday, and so it took most of the day yesterday to actually make it. Not that we're constantly tending it while it's making, because there are a lot of steps where it's just kind of sitting and doing its own thing. And then it was in the press overnight for the final pressing, which for Parmesan is a 12-hour press. And then today it went into the brine solution. So it's about to come out of the brine solution, probably about the time that we're done recording this episode. Ooh. It'll come out of the brine and it can start the air drying process, which as we discovered involves constantly spraying it with a squirt bottle to get it to dry. When you live in a very dry climate and you want it to dry very slowly, you have to water it to dry. Oh, we also were checking on our Parmesan that was aging, and it is starting to smell like Parmesan instead of fresh cheese. Right. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. It smells already, delicious. Like, and the, the color of the outside is changing a little mm-hmm. to look a little more like Parmesan after only a couple weeks. What, three weeks now of aging? Oh, so, something like that. Two or three weeks. Anyway, um, hasn't been aging that long, and like you said, is already starting to actually smell a little a little more like real parmesan. Yeah. So that's encouraging. So we do need to keep an eye on it because one of the issues we've had with cheese in the past is it ends up cracking or splitting because it dried too fast even in the mini fridge where it's aging. So if that happens then we just have to eat it right away. Oh darn. Um well yeah, but with Parmesan, like it wasn't that great. I tried some of it fresh. Oh, that's right. It wasn't that great. Not bad, but just like a squeaky fresh cheese curd kind of thing. Not really Parmesani at all. So I'm really hoping that we can actually age them to their full maturity so that we can get Parmesan flavor. Because I really don't think that you can rush Parmesan. Probably not. Maybe they do. Maybe when they make the the powdered Parmesan stuff, that's not mm. real Parmesan. Generally, I bet they have some way of rushing it oh, and still like getting some of that cheese? flavor. Yeah. So or snow cheese, like snow our kids cheese. call it. That's that's an update on the Parmesan cheese. We have our our second batch almost ready to go in the mini fridge to start aging. Uh, what else? Uh, sourdough starter. That smells so good. Pretty much tanked. Um, I'm going to oh. throw it out. We're going to try again. Dang it. So, yeah. Uh, we'll talk about that more when we do a sourdough episode. But sourdough involves 
not only baking bread, but also having a starter that you kind of maintain as a live active culture. So it's been a while since we've done sourdough consistently. Um, was it, I don't know, five or six years ago? Probably about five. Yeah, that I I was kind of into making sourdough and kind of had my recipe dialed in, had a really good starter that I liked, and then kind of quit making bread altogether. So haven't made sourdough in about five years. So it's going to take a little bit of practice, I think, to get back into making sourdough. And yeah, that batch of starter, like it seemed to be going good for a while and then just Tanked. didn't take off real well. Yeah. Honestly, it started smelling funny. Well, that's and a good reason to not use it anymore. For me to say that something is smelling funny, it's probably pretty far gone. <laughs> so anyway, the way that we started our starter in the past and the way that we tried to start this one was actually by using the the dregs from a beer, from a Belgian Trappist beer that actually has live yeast culture in it still, and then cultivating that yeast into the sourdough starter um, just to get some more flavors and stuff than you might get from just normal bread yeast. And what he's talking about, um, the part of the uh, Belgian beer that we used was the very bottom of it, so like the last little half inch, something like that, where um, there's still yeast in it compared to the rest of the beer. So we had to drink the rest of the beer. Oh, darn. It was really good. Right. And you let it sit kind of undisturbed and let that settle out to the bottom and then pour off the rest very gently. And then, yeah. And then you use that bottom half inch to harvest the yeast and hopefully use that to cultivate yeast in your sourdough starter we've had success with that in the past it made like the best sourdough that i've ever had in my life so i'm confident that we'll be able to do it again we'll play around with a little and we'll do an episode that's all about sourdough sometime in the very near future um so that's kind of where the sourdough's at is not at all right now we can start over um we had a, a big project earlier this week we got a bear. <laughs> yes, we did get a bear. So we had a bear to skin, butcher, pack, all of that. Did we get a bear or did you get a bear? And then I just helped. Yeah, I guess it was pretty much just me. <laughs> so this bear is a a black bear mm-hmm. um, that happened to be blonde colored, which was unique. Very unique. Beautiful coloring. So uh, a little smaller than some of the bears we've gotten in the past, but really pretty with the blonde coloring. And that's called a color phase bear. And there are six, I think. We'll count them. I think there are six color phases of black bears. Do you know what they are? Well, there's the black bear. Black. I'll count. There's the cinnamon bear. Mm -hmm. Which is... Can you describe cinnamon? Reddish brown. Okay, reddish brown. Mm-hmm. And then there's the blonde, which mm-hmm. is blonde. It's a little bit more like a dusky blonde color. And then there's the... Don't know. You got three. Is it a brown black bear? Chocolate. Chocolate. Right. 
So if it's like Black just bear. brown, that's chocolate. Like dark brown is chocolate. Okay. Light brown is like really light brown. Like this one is blonde. Um, reddish brown, which is distinctly different. The reddish brown is distinctly different from and the cinnamon. The chocolate, right? So that's no cinnamon is different is, than the reddish. No, cinnamon is reddish. I'm saying the cinnamon is a very, very reddish color, distinctly different from the chocolate, which is just dark brown. Gotcha. And the black is like jet black. Like she's at four. So we have the black, the cinnamon, the blonde, and the chocolate. There are two more. Those are the four that you might find in Wyoming. There are two more that you're not going to find in Wyoming. I know we've talked about this before. There's, Isn't there one on an island off of the coast of Washington? Or are those just big black bears? I don't think they're on an island. I uh, think they're on the mainland. Oh. I think. I could be wrong about that. Uh, they might also be on an island. They're sometimes called spirit bears. Does that give you a clue about the color? Are they white? They're white. Hmm. They're pretty cool. That's fun. And glacier bears. Glacier bears. They're like a bluish gray. They're really Ooh, pretty. Yeah. That sounds really fun. I'd love to see one of those. But four color phases that occur in Wyoming where we live are the black, chocolate, cinnamon, and blonde. And black still being the most common. And actually, here some of those other color phases are a lot more common than they are in other places in like the eastern populations of bears now they think that why that might be is just because if you have denser forests back east and less open area a pure black bear is going to have is going to blend in really well that's good camouflage in dense forest pure black is really good camouflage absolutely there's a lot more shadow for sure right as opposed to western areas where you have a lot more open area meadows where, rocks exactly where the the brown or the lighter colors could also be good camouflage yeah well if you think about it the even the antelope on the open range antelope are brown with a little bit of white and there's so much brown here even in the middle of the summertime that like they totally blend in so if you're a lighter color except for the white bear well yeah but if it's a lighter color they're like three or four days a year when the antelope blend in it is really funny because when the grass is green they totally stand out and when there's snow on the ground they totally stand out but those handful of days where you get the melting snow and it's all patchy between the clumps of grass and brush and the patches of snow and all of that and there's an antelope standing there and you don't see him i think it happens more than three times a year because <laughs> every time it snows vast majority of the time it snows it'll snow and then kind of melt off true anyway true. we are totally getting off topic anyway um so not to be confused with a brown bear Ooh. um sometimes also called grizzly bear we could we could actually talk for quite a while about the nuances between whether you call it a grizzly or a brown bear and what all of that actually means anyway that's a totally different species the american black bear is actually the most common bear in the world um they're not anywhere near being endangered or threatened or anything like that uh they seem to be fairly uncommon. You don't see them as often as you see like 
deer and stuff. Partly because there aren't as many as there are deer, but they're also really a nocturnal animal. They tend to be a very nocturnal animal anyway. So humans just don't bump into them that much. So that said, um, some people, I know some people are kind of like concerned about like bear hunt, like as hunting goes, even people who are somewhat, who are very tolerant of hunting, bear hunting is kind of pushing their tolerance a little bit. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree because they're fuzzy and people think of them as the teddy bear and yeah. Well, and also most people don't think of eating the bear. A lot of people are like okay with hunting for food, but they don't really see hunting for a bear as hunting for food, despite the fact that that's exactly why we hunt for bears, because they're they're amazing as food. Absolutely. Um, I have some ideas about how I would describe bear meat. Um, How would you describe bear meat? Now, having had quite a bit of bear meat in your life. (laughs) Well... I think I would describe bear meat as um, pork finished with blueberries. <laughs> that's that's kind of how I would describe it. However, it's a dark meat. It is also a dark it's meat. not a light meat like pork. True, but it tastes that way. It definitely has a different well has a different consistency. It definitely. Um, when you cook it, it definitely is a little bit more beef consistency, mm-hmm. but the taste is a lot more like pork, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I've described it before as just beef crossed with pork. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now, one thing that people often say, I'm sure you've heard this before, I hear this every time that I bring up eating bear. Somebody inevitably will say, oh, bear, I've heard it's really greasy. Hmm. Do you know what else is greasy? What's everyone's favorite greasy meat? Bacon. Bacon. Nobody complains. <laughs> Bacon for breakfast. Ugh, I've heard it's really greasy. Mm. <laughs> so, yes, I I guess you could say bear is greasy. It, in reality, bear just has a higher fat content than most other wild game. That's what it actually is. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's greasy. It's just a little less lean than deer. Well, Quite also, a bit less lean. It also depends on when you're hunting it, too. True. Right. there's the spring hunt and mm-hmm. the fall hunt. Right. Most places where you can hunt bear, there's a spring season and a fall season. Um, in the fall, they do tend to be a lot fatter because they're fattened up for hibernation. And in the spring, they tend to be a lot leaner because they're just coming out of hibernation and they've kind of burned off all of that fat that they stored up for hibernation. Right. So there is that. Um, But this one was a spring bear. So I've never had a fall bear. We might have to see if we can go find you a fall bear one of these days. Let's do it. (laughs) So also um, this bear was a male. Now, quick crash course in how they manage the bear hunting here the you have to have a tag for a bear they're allowed one per year as a resident or non-resident of wyoming you can just buy the tag over the counter 
Um, and that tag is good for one bear. Now they manage the season. There's an opening date and a closing date of the season. And then the state is divided into certain hunt areas. And they want to manage each of those areas to have a certain kind of target population of bears. Right? Right. Now, the season will close either at the end of the season or every time that a bear is harvested, you actually have to physically take the bear, at least the the um, the skull and the hide. So, like, we could go ahead and skin it, get the meat in a cooler on ice. So we can preserve right. the meat so it's still good to eat. Exactly, because we're not going to have a whole bear sitting around that that'd be defeats the purpose right the meat would start to spoil you'd start losing meat anyway then we take the head and the hide into the game and fish office um they do a couple things they verify the gender of the bear male or female and they take a tooth they actually pull a tooth um it's one of the yeah i think it's called a premolar so with bears you have like the front teeth whatever those are called Incisors. incisors Yep. And then the canines, you have the molars in the back Mm -hmm. and you have these tiny, tiny teeth that are just, they're absolutely minuscule. They're called premolars. And are those between the canine and the molars? Yes. Um, They're so small, I can't imagine that they actually do anything. We're talking like the diameter of a pencil lead. Hmm. They're really, really small and like that long. I wonder if they're like baby teeth, and so they're used when they're baby. I don't know. I don't know. I wonder. Anyway, um, it's fascinating. Though. So they pull mm-hmm. one of those, yeah, and they can use that to age the bear, so that they can. Um, Is that like for statistical purposes? For statistical, like scientific research purposes, they want to get an age on every single bear that's harvested. So, anyway, the season is going to close either on a set date when the season is set to close. Or in each of these areas, the specific area will close for hunting if a female mortality quota is reached. So what you're telling me is everybody who buys a tag may not even have the opportunity to get their bear if a certain number of female bears are harvested Mm -hmm. before they're able to harvest a bear. Right, as opposed to like a deer tag or an elk tag or something like that, where you know here's the beginning and ending date of the season, Mm -hmm. and I can hunt from this date to that date. With bears, you can start hunting on the first day of the season, but you actually have to call a hotline before you go hunting, every time you go hunting, to check the quota status of your hunt area. So, for example, we're in hunt area 8, I think, 8, yeah, in Wyoming, And so you call in and they tell you, um, they have a recording and however many are in the quota, how many have been harvested so far and all of that. And we're talking actually very low numbers on the female quota, um, like single digit numbers in most of these areas. So, so what's so special about like the female harvest? So why, why is that limited, but not the male, not the male. So Interestingly, and here's why we really target males when we're hunting bears. So it's a little counterintuitive, but I'll explain it. It'll make sense. Um, the 
number one mortality factor for bear cubs is adult male bears. So the adult male bears will actually kill cubs that they come in contact with? Yes. They will actually seek out and kill bear cubs. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Not what you'd expect. Right. So if, if the goal is to actually increase a bear population in a certain area, the fastest way to do that is by removing as many mature males as you can. So the bear cubs won't come in contact with the exactly. males. And so more male, excuse me, more bear cubs will go to mature levels. Right. Wow. They'll mature survive ages. to maturity. Huh. Exactly. So now obviously females <laughs> are the ones who are producing young. Um, and it takes, you know, one female can have one or two or maybe three cubs. We'll call it probably two on average, right? Okay. But it doesn't take that many male, mature male bears running around for all of the female bears in an area to be bred to make sure that they're having their cubs. Makes sense. So, you know, you're not going to like accidentally kill off all of the mature breeding males in an area. So that's why they really manage the female harvest closely because that's that's what would really determine the I guess the population levels, the management. And our bear population here is actually doing so well that they increased our female mortality quota uh, because they in order to manage a healthy population, not have them get overpopulated, not deplete the population, they actually have a target number of females that they want to have harvested every year out of each area. And that that determines what the, they call it a quota. Because from a hunting perspective, it's kind of like a quota, like here's our limit. But from a management perspective, that's like the, the target. They're like to, ha- to maintain a healthy population of bears in this area and it's a literal area drawn on a map, we need to remove however many females. And like I said, that's generally a very small number when you think about the number of people potentially out there hunting, the total bear population, all of that. So for example, um, last year for the spring season, I think the female quota was five, and this year they actually increased it to nine. So we're still talking single-digit numbers. Right. So they're monitoring this very, very closely. And our state game agency just does a spectacular job of managing all of the big game species, all of the, well, not just big game, all of the wildlife in the whole state. They do a great job. So bear hunting is something that they manage very, very closely. And so that's kind of why we target mostly males when we're hunting. Um, well, they even have pamphlets that they that they kind of give out of bear hunting, like what you're looking for, what you're not looking for, that sort of thing, to make sure that you are targeting the males to increase the population or, you know, keep it, maintain right. it. Right. Yeah. Well, and most hunters are generally looking for a male anyway. And I should mention, um, there's the female quota, however... You cannot legally take a female with cubs. Yes. So. Yes, that is that. Yep. Right. So any bear that's taken does not have cubs. Now, 
did she have cubs? Were those cubs previously killed by a male bear or some other thing happened? Or um, like one of the bears that we've gotten turned out to be a female. She was huge. She had the build of a male bear. Turned out to be female. They aged her and she was actually so old that she was probably well beyond her breeding age. That's right. How old was she? I don't remember. I don't remember exactly either. They it's definitely double digits. I remember oh, that. Oh, yeah. I don't remember yeah. how old she was, though. Right. I want to say she was like 16. I, that sounds about right. Yeah. I'm, I don't now, remember. Bears can live older than that, but um, she was also dry, so she didn't. She had not recently had cubs. So, anyway, um, you know, I will still try to target male bears, but. You know, sometimes a, an old female bear is very difficult to distinguish from a male bear. Like, it's not as easy as telling the difference between male and female deer or elk. It's like <laughs> they don't you know, have horns. You got antlers or horns for like sheep and goats and yeah. antelope and stuff like that. Some animals are really hard to tell. Some are easy to tell. Um, bears, there are some dead giveaways, but like when they pee. If you're lucky enough to see the bear pee, males pee, f- pee forward and females pee backward. So, have you watched a bear? Like, have you oh, wondered this, th- about a bear long enough and just kind of watched it and like, yeah, watched it totally. Like, like huh. this most recent one that I took, I saw him pee and he peed forward. So I was a hundred percent sure it was a male. Oh. And I spent some time. I probably watched him for fifteen minutes. Just making sure you didn't have cubs. Just looking for cubs, observing him, making sure I was kind of estimating his size and age at least somewhat accurately. Looking for cubs. Looking for cubs. Because that's the absolute last thing I want to do is shoot a female bear with cubs. So look for cubs again. Like search all of the shrubs and timber for cubs. At which point he peed. I'm like, oh, clearly a male. Yeah. No cubs. So anyway, um, so there's that. So what are we doing with them? Um, so we skinned him out and we processed the meat, which is really similar, like kind of regardless of the animal. After you've processed a lot of different animals, they're all very similar, whether it's a deer or a goat or a hog or a bear. So, I feel like we've gotten that down to almost a science at this point. We kind of decide, like, what cuts do we want whole? We'll cut those whole, and then... Which does change with different animals. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, for sure. And kind of what mood we're in. Like, oh, we want more roasts, or we want more ground. And then we grind the rest. Now, with our deer and stuff, we generally mix in some pork fat to the ground meat. With a bear, you really don't have to do that because it has enough fat of its own. It's not as lean. So it's a, it actually makes a really good ground meat just on its own. Um, so one word of caution, if you're going to eat bear, uh, trichinosis. Yes. Um, now, trichinosis is a parasitic Parasite. worm. Now, that they're tiny. They're absolutely microscopic. You cannot see them. Um, and my advice to anybody who is concerned about trichinosis and is thinking about hunting bears and is unsure about eating the bear meat is to not get it tested. Just cook it well done and you don't have to worry about it. I believe 160 is the 
temperature that kills off all trichinosis. So if you cook it to 165, just to be safe, you'll be fine. That yes. will kill off all the trichinosis. Hogs sometimes can also have it too. So True. if you're getting a wild hog, you mm-hmm. want to make sure that's one of the right. reasons why you have to cook pork higher. Yeah. I mean, now with you can argue about some of the newer recommendations for pork cooking that's like yeah, mm-hmm. just assume yeah, if, 165. Right, and assume assume that your bear has trichinosis before you even pull the trigger. Like, if you're going out bear hunting with the intent of getting it tested for trichinosis and then not eating it just because you found out that it is trick positive, don't even go bear hunting. No. So, yeah, just assume that it's going to have it because basically all mature bears have it. Um. So yeah, just assume that it has it. Cook your meat to 165 and call it good. So we got a lot of meat. We have some at least 60 pounds, 70. Uh, like probably that. more than that. Yeah, <laughs> there, was, there was a lot. Uh, we didn't actually weigh it, no. but like I said, this was a smaller bear too. Um, I say smaller. Um, it was still above average size for a mature bear, at least in our area, because. Mm-hmm. Bears don't actually get as big as people think they do. <laughs> they're they're a smaller animal. Well, most animals, most wild animals, people overestimate the size of them just cuz they're different than they're than they're used to or they seem bigger cuz mm. they're scared. I mean, I would at least say most most predatory type animals. Uh, that people overestimate the size. You're right. And most ungulate type animals i would actually say people underestimate the size that's interesting yeah um for whatever reason i don't know if it's the length of the legs or or what but like like a bear okay so you think about a bear rug okay um now there's something called a square measurement on a bear rug and they call it a square because the front paw to front paw like tip to tip measurement is usually very very close to the same as the nose to tail measurement so the way you actually come up with a square is by taking both of those measurements adding them together and dividing by two they could both be like exactly five feet right Mm -hmm. so you think about a bear rug like a five foot bear rug which is a large mature bear yeah, I know that they're like gigantic, like trophy size bears that get bigger than that. But really, like a typical big bear is going to square out, as it's called, square at about out. five feet. Uh-huh. So it's nose to tail and it's paw to paw is about five feet. So if you do some quick math, if you take out a few inches for the, the paw being like turned on the ground on this side, a few inches for the paw being turned on the ground on this side. Yep. And then you go like up one side, across the back, down the other side. A five foot bear stands less than two feet tall. I wonder if some of people's perception of predatory animals are like their fear associated with it. Also, like, because if you see some sort of animal and it's like, it's possibly something that could hurt you, you're going to overestimate the concern level in your head probably yeah and i i don't know why people underestimate often the size of ungulate type animals like like a 
whitetail buck or an elk or anything like that. I, I don't know. Anyway, um, so we got the bear completely processed, got a ton of meat off of it, which is really exciting because bear meat is awesome. And um, then we took all of the bones from the bear. And if you've been listening to the podcast for any length of time, you've heard us talk about bone broth. So we did a big batch of bone broth with all of the bones from the bear. Now we ended up roasting them first. We talked about that on a previous episode also. So we popped them in the big roaster, roasted them in the oven until they were browning nicely. I don't know if there's like a specific time and temperature that you're supposed to use for roasting bones before you turn them into bone broth. We just popped them in the roaster in the oven and cooked them until they were nicely browned. And then we put them all in a big stock pot, uh, covered them in water, um, added some salt. I think that's maybe a little pepper, salt and pepper. I don't know. Yeah, the peppercorns, because the peppercorns yeah. will actually kind of dissolve. Mm-hmm. And then just started so slowly simmering it. Uh, chopped an onion in half, dropped that in there. Celery. A few celery stalks, dropped those in there. So it's really a pretty simple broth. It's not going to have a lot of other flavors. Um which is kind of what I wanted to do with the bear anyway, so that we would, instead of masking the flavor with a bunch of spices and stuff, it's like if you're going to experience bear meat or bear broth, you want to get the bear flavor, right? Yeah. And it's turning out really good. I sampled some. Oh, did you get to sample some today? I did sample some today. I sample some and today. I think I would, I would describe it as like beefy and earthy in in the best way not in like a dirt way but like like an earthy flavor aroma in a good way it smells amazing so um we'll probably simmer that for the rest of the night tonight and then can it tomorrow it's kind of hard to distinguish right now we are also making goat broth also we're kind of doing two broths because mm. we're we love making our own broth. It is so healthy. Go back to the bone broth episode. It is so healthy yeah. for you. Well, we had a but, goat roast, yeah, a leg roast, so good that oh we my slow cooked and then took the meat off. And then it's like, okay, then you just take a the bone. bone, and if there are any other little bits of tendon or anything that you're not going to eat as meat, toss them back in, cover it with water, and keep simmering it. And then it's like you get so much more food value out of the same thing uh, because you're not just getting the one roast. You're getting a roast and a whole batch of this really healthy broth that you can can. Now the, the goat roast had a bunch of other like Greek spices on it and stuff. So it's so going to have a lot of other flavor too, but also really good. So what? is there anything else that we were going to update? I don't, I don't um, know. The hide, uh, we thought about tanning our own bear hide, but it was blonde. It, it was, was a so blonde bear. Beautiful. So I really don't want to mess that one up. So I'm just going to let a professional tan it. So we'll get it professionally tanned. He already has it, <laughs> it's in good hands. It is in good hands. Um, and the skull, um, we are going to clean and bleach our own bear skull because. Bear skulls are super cool. So if you get a bear, like why not 
clean and bleach and display the skull also. So um, I think that was about it for updates on projects. So we do have a story of something that happened last weekend. Oh, I think it yes. was last Saturday. Yeah. <coughs> so last Saturday, Dying a little we bit. had a half inch of rain, which is not very much at all. Um, and we are down in elevation from a plateau. Um, and the plateau also got this fair amount of rain and it ran off. It did not get soaked into the ground because you need plant that's, material. That's a lot of rain for roots. here. It is a lot of rain for here. But, but that's half an inch over a, a span of like four to six hours. It, for most of you out there, that's not Nothing. very much rain. So we had a flash flood through our property. Now, what's really interesting is the amount of grass matter over the last couple of years just um, stopping the overgrazing. We actually did not have any runoff from the rain that fell on our property. There were actually certain areas of our property that had natural drainages kind of coming through it. And the rain that was coming through those natural drainages actually was soaked into the ground before it even got halfway through our property. So it was absorbing more water than what was felt like what fell onto our property. Right. And that's that's a good thing. Like absorbing it is a good thing. Runoff is a bad thing. Well, runoff is a bad thing because the water that runs off also carries the nutrients in the topsoil with it and it increases the amount of erosion that happens. And that's where this flash flood that ran through part of our property isn't necessarily necessarily the best thing. It did take some of that topsoil that we've been working so hard for and all the water from upstream, it didn't get absorbed. So it had all the runoff of all of that property as well. So you basically have this brown water that has so much nutrients in it flowing straight into the lake. Right. Right. Yeah. There are a lot of a lot of downsides of all of that moving water that should just be absorbed into the ground. And we've talked about this before on the podcast too, how with habitat restoration, slowing down the the movement of water and getting it underground is one of the keys. So, um, so like you said, the nutrients that it's carrying downstream, that's bad because that can actually create an algae or cyanobacteria bloom in the lake or river or whatever it's flowing into also, which can, that can kill off the fish. And then the rotting fish create even more of a nutrient overload in that body of water. And it's, it's just like a really bad cycle. So you can, you can actually trace a fish die off all the way back upstream to overgrazing. It's fascinating. I mean, there's a big dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Okay. We can get off that topic, but point is this was bad, but we have made a significant impact on the small little of he- like small little slice of heaven that we have here. Um, but that kind of brings us to the topic of what we're talking about today. Right, because we're talking about slowing down the movement of water. Right. And this is something that we've hit on very briefly before mm-hmm. on the podcast. But this is today's actual project 
is installing rain barrels. Yay! Um, tell me about rain barrels. Rain barrels. Tell me what they actually are, what they do, why you would want them, why they're awesome. Well, first off, make sure they're legal in your areas. There are some states that um, you cannot capture the rainwater that goes onto your roof. Um, but in Wyoming, where we I don't live, think that's actually true no, anymore. not anymore. Did um, it change recently? Yeah, there, there may be some restrictions as to what you can use the water for like principality like principalities and counties and right um but i believe colorado was the last state to legalize the collection of rainwater oh it was recent then yeah it's been within the last like year or two huh um don't quote me on this do your own research as always still verify um and there may be local municipalities with their own regulations as far as like, I don't know, you might have to have a permit for it in some places, but I believe Colorado was the last holdout where like a, a couple years ago, you just couldn't collect rainwater and now you can. So I think everywhere, at least everywhere in the United States now, um, you can definitely collect rainwater. And I know the vast majority of other countries, it's like not even a question. Of course you can collect rainwater. It'd be silly not to. So so, you have this square footage of your house, and you have a roof on it. You don't have vegetation where that roof is. You have this solid surface that rain falls on and runs off. So, you can collect that, and you can use it for irrigation. That's what we're going to use. So, in our garden, um, whether it's a vegetable garden or a flower garden or our trees that we just recently planted... We're going to use the water that we collect as runoff from our roof through our gutters and use it for irrigation so we don't have to use other water. We don't have to use our well water. And if you live in a city or a subdivision, you don't have to use city water. You can use the runoff. So instead of that runoff going into like a a sewer, you can just gather it and use it and soak it into the ground. And just irrigate. Yes. And rainwater is some of the best irrigation water out there. It's going to be better than well water. It doesn't have the minerals. It's going to be better than any city water out there because it's not going to have the chlorine or chloramine or any of that stuff. And to relate this back to what we're talking about with slowing down the flow of water, in general, your water from rain comes in spurts, right? You kind of have like a lot and then none and then a lot and then none. Yes. But where you need to use that water, your demand on that water is more constant, right? Yes. So the rain barrel creates the buffer between the water supply and the water demand. So you collect it as it runs off your roof, and then you slowly use it up when you don't have the water running off of your roof. Exactly. And a restored landscape, to go back to the flash flood, a healthy landscape should do kind of the same thing, where when it rains, the water soaks into the ground and then slowly moves underground and supplies all of the plants, the springs, the streams with the water that they need in a more constant stream. Because you have that underground buffer doing the same thing that we're doing with a rain barrel, just on a much, much larger scale, right? Right. 
So if you want to think about these two landscapes and how the flash flood happens, think about if you had a slanted surface, okay? And on that slanted surface, you put two objects. One of those objects is a dinner plate. Slanted surface, so it's tipped over like that. The other object is a big sponge, like one of the sponges that we used for cleaning the The boat. car. <laughs> right? A big car sponge. sponge, right? Okay, now at the top end, so it's on a slant, right? Yep. So at the top end of both of those, at your dinner plate and your sponge, you occasionally pour some water. You take a you know, little cup measure or whatever. You're you're getting crazy hitting the table. Totally hit the table <laughs> while I'm trying to demonstrate what he's talking okay. about with my hands. <laughs> and and you pour some water onto the top end of the plate and the top end of the sponge. Now what happens when you pour the water on the plate? It just runs off. It runs off. It creates a flash flood downstream. Now, what happens when you pour the water on the sponge? It absorbs. And eventually runs down and drips out, right? Slowly, yes. So so let's say that, you know, this is a a small-scale demonstration of what's going on on a large scale in nature. Let's say that once a week you get a rainstorm, Okay. But on our small scale in the kitchen, we're doing it every, I don't know, every 15 minutes. Okay? So 15 minutes represents a week. Okay. Okay? So we take our cup of water and we pour it at the top of the plate. What happens the second time? It still runs off. We get another flash flood. Yeah, absolutely. And what happens to the sponge? It still soaks in and slowly drips out the bottom. And then 15 minutes later, we do the same thing. On the plate, we get another flash flood, right? Yep. Keeps and on the getting, sponge, yeah. so what ends up happening is at the bottom end of the sponge, we have mitigated the flood and drought cycle. Right. And the combination of healthy grasses, trees, mulch layers, root systems, beaver ponds, subsurface aquifers, all of that stuff in combination creates a sponge instead of a dinner plate. So when you look at a healthy landscape, that healthy landscape should be functioning as a sponge. Absorbing more water. A depleted landscape acts like a dinner plate, yeah. creating flash floods. Now, as a side note, like even for someone who's basically oblivious to the ecological impacts of overgrazing... All of these, all of these other things. This flash flood literally caused thousands of dollars of damage, possibly tens of thousands of do- dollars of damage. The roads are demolished. To property to our community's roads. Our, Someone's camper. Our neighbor's camper Float, floated was away. Carried downstream. Yeah. Like that's how much flooding we're talking about. But it's not like it was near a stream. There was no stream there. Right. It's just like out in the middle of their property, next to their house, and. That's where the flash flood happened, happened to yeah. come through. Like it is not a natural drainage. So, right, we're talking literally causing ourselves thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of damage to property and infrastructure due to these other environmental factors. So, 
Yes. So we put in rain barrels. And we, it took multiple trips to the hardware store because we had to get multiple parts for the hole saw <laughs> to drill into the side of our gutters. Right. Yeah, the hole saw saga is a separate story. We have a lot of hole saws. Oh, we totally do. Like, I have every single standard size of hole saw. And I have good, high-quality, bimetal hole saws that will drill right through sheet metal. Right? Yep. Now, the hole saws that were required for the installation of the rain barrels are off sizes. So I have a two-inch hole saw. I have a a two-and-a-quarter-inch hole saw. Guess what size you need to install the rain barrel? Two and one eighth. Two and an eighth. Who makes anything that requires a two and an eighth inch hole saw? Well, the people that we bought this from did. So we installed these awesome rain barrels and we actually used some of the... I guess you could call them like water tanks that we used before. Yes, um, when water we, tanks. Um, when we first put in trees, mm-hmm. gosh, five, right. six years ago. We had the trees ago. on a drip system, so we had some water tanks. So we went ahead and reused, repurposed those repurposed for, as rain barrels. We yes. got so much rain. We had, what, 300 gallons of rain. Mm-hmm. Um, we caught, I guess we should say, yeah. 300 gallons of rain in that rainstorm. In one day. Well, in one day. Yeah, yeah. it was amazing. Just channeling it off the roof into the barrels and yeah, worked real well. And then when we water our garden, like a heavy watering for the garden at this point, we use 40 gallons, maybe 40, 40 gallons, 40 gallons. That's yeah. what we used. Right. So being able to catch 300 in a rainstorm and that's not even, that's only having two rainbow. So our house, I think has a total of 10 downspouts. We have a lot of downspouts cause we have yeah, a lot of different of the roof lines. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Um, I think we have a total of 10 downspouts, and that is capturing rain from two of them. Now, granted, those two cover a little more surface area. Those are probably the biggest two catchment areas. Which is why we put the two, right. the two we there. We prioritized yeah. that. So um, what the rain barrel actually does is you install something called a diverter in the downspout. So you think about the surface area of your roof. It flows off of the roof into a gutter down the length of the gutter into a downspout and then down the downspout and out onto the ground. The diverter catches it midway down the downspout and diverts the water as it flows into a water tank. So you're actually catching the rainwater instead of it just spilling out on the ground. Now, if you want to figure out how much water you can catch, it's pretty simple. You figure out the surface area of your roof um, and technically the, the horizontal footprint surface area not the actual surface area of the roof anyway um right because one's angled and you actually have the same amount of multiply that by your annual rainfall um in inches convert it to feet whatever convert everything to feet so um square feet of roof times feet of annual rainfall is going to give you a cubic foot measurement 
convert that to gallons. You can even multiply it by an efficiency factor. If you say, I think I'm going to be 75% efficient, multiply it by 0.75, and that's how many gallons of water you're going to collect. Now, you have to also have a large enough rain barrel to collect the rainwater as it comes and hold it for when you need it. So if you get very consistent rain throughout the whole year, maybe it rains in your area once a week and then you water your garden once a week between those rains and it's pretty predictable and consistent, you can get away with a smaller rain barrel. If all of your rain tends to come at once and maybe you get like a big rainstorm and then it doesn't rain again for two months, you're going to need larger rain barrels to collect that and hold it. So that's just kind of how you design your system. Now, um, let's talk about some of the other stuff we've done with some of our downspouts and other plans for downspouts. So before we got the rain barrels installed, we did have some of those little Rubbermaid um, stock tanks. Yes. That are like 25-gallon. How would you describe I just call them a Rubbermaid stock tank. How would you describe it to somebody that doesn't know what that is? So it's very movable. It's like a like a rubber, and you can move it around. It's a large bowl, but it's like really movable, so it's easy to lift up and kind of manipulate, so Mm -hmm. you can get more water out of it and kind of be able to shove a gallon milk jug type of like a water jug in there and get it i don't know right um so it's basically shaped like a dog bowl it's shaped like a dog bowl but you can move it around a lot easier than just a big plastic bowl right um so we put a couple of those under a couple of our downspouts and they immediately filled up like we got a tiny tiny little bit of rain and Instantly, they were totally full and overflowing. Like five minutes of rain, not even. Which was great because then we could start using some of that for watering the garden. Just like dip it out and put it on the garden. And also we started seeing birds that we had never seen before. Because some birds like to have a spot to splash around in the water. That's why you put in a bird bath in your yard, right? Yeah. Like robins. We did start seeing robins this year. There were some other birds that we saw too. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was really and, nice. And um, red-winged blackbirds. Yeah. I don't know if that had to do more with that or more to do with other habitat restoration on the property. Bigger bushes, that sort of right. thing. Um, what else? Cedar waxwings. That was cool. We saw them. Um, I don't know if they like the water, but in general, we're just seeing so many more birds which is a good sign that we're doing something right with the habitat restoration. So, so many more birds, number of species, and the number, and of, number birds of birds total. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like, the, Yeah, the other day we walked down into the the valley on our property and just stood there and like listened and watched all the birds flying around and singing and all that, which has really never happened before. We also had crickets. I don't think we'd ever had crickets before either. So we... We definitely are having more, yeah, more variety of species, which is nice. So um, final thing um, that we're thinking about doing with one of our downspouts is installing a rainwater guzzler, wildlife guzzler. Yes, we are. 
The way that a wildlife guzzler works is basically the same way that a rain barrel works, except that instead of using it to water your plants, you have part of it that's called a drinker um, that wildlife can drink out of. So it basically has three parts. It has what's called the catch apron, uh, which is a large surface area set at an angle. It rains, it runs down the apron, fills a tank. The tank is the second part. And then the tank can slowly fill the drinker as needed. So in like very arid climates, you can use this to provide a year-round water source for wildlife. But the drinker is not shaped like the dog bowls that we have under some of our gutters that we can kind of manipulate and move. It's actually in, it's a tank that has this angled um, ramp going down into it. That's, yeah, that's one way to do them. Oh, okay. Um, what are uh, other ways? Other ways actually do have more of a bowl-shaped drinker. Some of them even have a float valve to tell when it needs to be refilled from the tank. We're leaning toward that design that you're talking about because it's totally freeze-proof. Oh. Right. So you don't have to like drain it in the winter because it doesn't have any moving parts or anything like that. And basically what we would do is take one of the downspouts off the house. We already selected which one. We're going to put, uh, set it up so it empties into a pipe that runs underground, um, runs a little ways down the hill, and then empties into the tank, the fill tank, the storage tank for the guzzler. Um, so then that portion of the roof of the house actually acts as the catch apron fills the storage tank, and provides a, a fresh water source for wildlife. Which could be anything, the way that these are designed, could be anything from small birds to elk. And they're designed to have all of those different animals be able to get into it and out of it safely and utilize that water source. And one of the reasons why we wanted it to be further from the house so that lots of different animals would be comfortable coming to it. So, I mean, we already know that some of the antelope will come close to the house and dig up some of our garden um, garden vegetables and garden plants and eat it. Um, but I mean, some other animals, when we start having more of a habitat, maybe we're going to get some deer and they're going to want to be a little bit further from the house or some other antelope will want to be further from the house during the daytime so we can have a nice place to view them, see them, enjoy them, but not have them be so close to the house where they're uncomfortable. Right. So that's kind of our plan. Um, one downspout for for that. Maybe we'll leave one as a bird bath. I don't know, because I kind of like having the, the birds around. That's fun. The, like, so maybe we'll just have a bird bath downspout. And then um, we have two covered right now with the current barrels. We're going to actually tie two together into another larger tank. And then whatever the remaining downspouts are, we'll probably do some sort of rain barrels on those also. Yeah. Yeah smaller tanks we can use those just to water you know whatever landscaping we have right in that vicinity um so i don't know that's kind of it for the rain barrel project um we were going to talk about keeping them clean because that's an issue that we're 
already experiencing yeah. despite still being like a week out from our last frost. Yep. Um, they are already growing algae and already um, being populated by various aquatic insects. Uh, some of the little divey beetles with like paddles for feet are already living in them. So we're going to have to play around with especially the algae because algae is photosynthetic so yep. the sun shines on the um on the rain barrel shines through and algae can grow we have a lot of sun here so mm-hmm. that definitely is something that that we we have so one of the things that i found um when i was kind of looking at different ways to clean it you know all of us talking about at the end of the season um, right before your last frost or after, excuse me, your first frost, um, or like right after your first frost, you drain it and then you scrub it with like a vinegar water solution. That's cleaning it for like the winter time, but it's not necessarily for during the season that you're going to be using it. I mean, right. we're not going to be drinking out of it, so that's not necessarily Maybe that big not. of an issue. <laughs> Animals might be, but I don't know. Are you planning on drinking? Right, but we, we haven't even gotten into our growing season yet. <laughs> That's true. And we already have significant algae growth. Yeah, we'll so, have to figure something out. Shade is definitely one way to combat the algae growth. Yeah. We do have plans over these barrels of putting some shade in, but mm-hmm. that's going to take some time. Right. We'll get there. So keeping the sunlight out of the barrel is definitely one way to to minimize or at least reduce the the algae growth. We had also thought about dropping in some sort of fish, um, some sort of either algae-eating or plant-eating fish, even some goldfish into there. The problem with that is that, and you you can go back and listen to any of our aquarium episodes where we've talked about nutrient cycles and stuff like that, Adding fish that are going to eat the algae or plants or bugs or whatever's in there is not actually exporting the nutrients from the tank. It's still a closed system. And when they consume the algae or plants or bugs or whatever, the biomass, whatever it is, the nutrients that they consumed are still in the tank. And they're going to poop or pee those nutrients out. So you're not actually removing anything by adding the fish to it unless you have like a full-blown aquaponic system that you're running off the rain barrel and then you're exporting the nutrients and allowing plants that are elsewhere to um, use those nutrients to, to grow. grow. Yeah. Right. And then you're actually exporting nutrients from your water. Now, one thing that we might do is add something like duckweed. Hmm, like the it, plant that floats that uh-huh. absorbs inside the, the tank. Yeah. So, so those plants could actually consume the nutrients, and then we could actually dip into the tank with a dip net, hmm. remove the duckweed as it grows because it grows prolifically. It does. Okay, I'm I'm actually actively thinking about this as we're talking. Yeah. Um. Yeah, usually I try to think about things before we talk about them on the podcast, but um, that's actually going to provide more shade for the water too. So if you have a good layer of duckweed on top, it's going to tend to shade the water underneath, which is going to inhibit algae growth to a certain extent. 
the more, and then it's going to absorb some of the It's going to take the nutrients that the algae yeah. would need, hopefully outcompete the algae, and then you can actually remove the duckweed. And duckweed actually is great feed for all sorts of livestock, hmm. whether it's chickens or hogs. Um, or if we don't feed it to our livestock, be you know, great put fertilizer it in the compost. for plants. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So that might actually be a really good solution. So maybe we'll add some duckweed to the water tanks. We can even feed our worms. Duckweed? Like worst case scenario. Yeah, we'll compost it, like I said. Awesome. So um, we'll try that. I'm going to get some duckweed and throw it into the the rain barrels. Done. We'll see what happens. And we'll update all of you. Hopefully this doesn't backfire somehow. <laughs> it might. Who knows? <laughs> so, um, I think that might be... Because I know there are also things you can do. Like there are tablets you can get or yeah, but adding chemical treatments you can yeah. do. It's like, doesn't that kind of defeat the purpose of like the the environmental friendliness of having a rain barrel if you're going to use a chemical treatment to keep algae from growing in it? Depending on the <laughs> chemical you're using, you could argue it. However, with the way you're wanting to do things, yes. So so we're going to try the duckweed. And then it's like, it's like another resource. Instead of being a liability, it's something else that you can actually use. Hmm. So We should try it. We'll see how that goes. We'll brainstorm. Make sure there's no downside. Hey, maybe maybe if we do duckweed, yeah. the duckweed can actually export um, nitrates from fish that consume the algae. So, so you're talking about I just putting don't... goldfish and duckweed. <laughs> yep, both. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll contemplate this. I just don't know what we would do with the goldfish when we drain the tank. We'd have to have like an indoor pond. We can put the goldfish in. Like... Okay, guys, it's winter. Chickens? I don't know. Feed them to the chicken. We could just I've... eat them. We could get tilapia. <laughs> okay, you're okay with eating tilapia, but not goldfish. You realize that's a fine line between the two. <laughs> We're going to grow tilapia in okay. our rain barrels. In our rain barrels. And okay, this is the solution. Put duckweed We're gonna, on top. Yep. We're going to put tilapia and duckweed in the rain barrels to create a balanced ecosystem. The tilapia will eat all of the bugs that fly into the rain barrels, all the aquatic insects. They'll eat some of the duckweed too. They'll grow. Then we can... This is This is like... This is, this is this a perfect is, solution. This, this is, is the Isaac thought process. <laughs> like, as it gets thought up, this, and then, is, this is normal. This is how it works. And then in the winter, uh-huh. when we drain the rain barrels we'll eat to the winterize tilapia. them, we eat the tilapia. This is like three wins. We get a rain barrel. It stays clean. Apparently, I can't tilapia. count. Because it's at least four wins. We have tilapia meat. <laughs> And we're producing duckweed that we can feed to all of our other livestock, too. I only counted three. We have rain barrels, tilapia, and duckweed. You know what else tilapia eat? What? Mosquito larvae. Mosquito larvae. 
Yeah. So if we happen to have an issue with, which we don't have yet, I didn't see any mosquito larvae in the rain barrels. But if you did, tilapia would eat them too. So this is like a win, 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 win for everybody. So uh, how many wins do the less mosquito larva count as? I think that was at least six. just one. Oh, okay. Just one. Got it. So. How fast do tilapia grow? Depends on how much food they have. I. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. They grow pretty fast. Get some good fillets in there. Definitely put tilapia in a tank in the spring and be eating them by fall. (laughs) So like three months. They're they're also quiet. We live in Wyoming, so it's like three months. So. Well, what what fish are loud? Are you familiar with loud fish? No, but I'm familiar with other loud small livestock like chickens and like rabbits. Chickens are or rabbits are quiet too. That's one of the perks of rabbits no. like we talked about with your neighbors. So if you want to raise some of your own livestock to eat mm-hmm. in your backyard. Rabbits. Chickens. Tilapia. Wait, chicken. Guineas. They're really not loud. Just kidding. Guineas are really loud for all of you listeners. Because your neighbors are not going to hear your tilapia. Or your rabbits. Living in the rain barrel. So done there you go okay we're gonna try that out and see how it goes we'll let you know it's, we- it's easy the barrel's already set up we're just gonna drop some tilapia where bloop, 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 where bloop. are we gonna get tilapia amazon Am- <laughs> buy it on amazon amazon not the amazon so i don't think there are tilapia in the amazon <laughs> we could do piranhas they're del- have you ever eaten piranha no but i went fishing for piranhas that was really fun they're pretty good we could do piranhas oh yeah probably not they would die yeah. It's too cold. Too Very much too cold. It like <laughs> freezes almost every night. And they don't eat duckweed. <laughs> <laughs> Fail. Okay, no piranhas. Done. Okay, so tilapia. From the Amazon. Oh, wait, Amazon. Not the Amazon. Uh, there are people I can call here yeah? who have tilapia in their aquaponic systems. We can get that some tilapia. Is, that is true. We can get some tilapia. And we'll try them in a rain barrel. We, yeah, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> I love it. All right, there we go. So, um, so there's the rain barrel project. We can even do them in the bigger. Oh, Two hundred and fifty gallons is a pretty big tank. They'll be fine in there. So what happens? Like I'm, I'm just throwing it out there. What happens when we don't get rain for multiple weeks on end, and we're using up their water? Do we buy water from town and not buy, but bring water from town and fill it? I'm just, I'm throwing out the cons. I think that would have to be part of the whole system is as part of the buffer that the rain barrel provides. We'd have to say, okay, here's the minimum level that we can drain this rain barrel down to. And that it's just part of the calculation of the size of the rain barrel, the amount of rainfall, our consumption, how much the fish need. How much the sunflowers need. <laughs> That's part of our consumption, mm-hmm. watering your sunflowers. sunflowers. Yay! Yeah. Sunflowers so. make me happy. Mm. That's why we planted like... 200? <laughs> at least. Giant sunflowers. Well, we went to a farm last fall and we bought two sunflower heads that had the seeds still in them. Um, And we 
basically dried the seeds and we planted a whole bunch of them because a sunflower head that's a foot and a half wide is a lot of sunflowers. Yep. So sunflowers also. Yay. So like I said, it'll just be part of the calculation. How much do we use? How much do the fish need to maintain? How much rain do we get? All of that. We'll figure it out. We'll try it. So we will update you on whether or not we get tilapia and duckweed to put in the rain barrels. We'll yep. go from there. And that's all. And before you hear about it on an episode of the podcast, you can see pictures on Instagram, on Instagram. or Facebook. Master of None Facebook. Master of None Podcast on Facebook. Boom. The, the group. Go join the group. If you're on Facebook and you're not on the Master of None Podcast Facebook group yet, go click on the request to join button and I will click on accept or approve or whatever it says on my end. So you can get on that group and share your projects, get some ideas and inspiration and advice from other people and also appreciate those other people's projects and stuff. Um, Instagram, um, I'm always putting current project photos up on Instagram. You can follow me at Isaac.r.gordon. I-S-A-A-C dot R dot G-O-R-D-O-N. Also, uh, check out show notes and stream any episode on the website, masterofnonepodcast.com. You think you're so funny. Dot com. <laughs> and um, what else? You look scared. Uh, if you have any questions about projects um, or suggestions for future episodes, future projects, uh, complaints, anything like that, go ahead and send me an email. Uh, contact at masterofnonepodcast.com or you can always just contact me on the contact page on the website. Go to the website, masterofnonepodcast.com. And there's a button that says contact or something to that effect. Do you have anything else? Three people this week told me they started making yogurt because of this like podcast. Personal acquaintances. Personal not acquaintances. Even, not even like Master email. of Non Podcast emails. It's a it's a little weird like yeah. around town, like bumping into people here like Oh, and then you realize that like you listen to me like uh, you, <laughs> you actually take my advice on stuff. <laughs> we have really good advice on a lot of things. You've always had that. I mean, yeah, we, we could, we should do a podcast of all the different people that call you about the random things that they mm. have questions about. Cause there's dozens of people who call you. I hear. Yeah, we should do that. That, that would be kind of fun. Yeah, let's do it. I, I'm for a certain niche, not even a niche, like a lot of a lot of niches of information. You are the master I'm, of I'm none. I'm the phone a friend guy for somewhat eclectic <laughs> information. <laughs> like, awesome. Oh, he doesn't know anything about how how to get my computer or iPhone to work. Though you built your own computer. <laughs> However. <laughs> 
if I'm out in the wilds and my feet are cold. <laughs> or you're wanting to plant a pineapple. That Yeah, that too. So, yeah, that would be fun. We could do, we could actually do a bunch of phone-ins on some of those questions. Like, oh. as people call. That's what we should do. Yeah. As people actually call for uh-huh. advice. Say, hang on. Get them plugged in and record it. And we could compile phone-in questions that I get. That would be epic. That would be fun. That would be epic. Love it. Also, what aisle in Home Depot is because people actually that, call me. That is true. To find out where stuff is in Home Depot instead of asking the people who work there. That does happen. Anyway, um, I think that's about all we have for now. Yeah. So, yep. Send in those questions and concerns and high praise to contact at masterofmenpodcast.com. Until next time, have a great week and pursue your mastercraft. Bye. Theme music for the Master of None podcast is Club Seamus by Kevin McLeod. Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Creativecommons.org. If you need some of your own original music, go check out Kevin's other work at his website, incompetech.com. Incompetech.com.